Welcome to Creator Talks. I'm your host, Christopher Calloway. I have a very special interview for you all today, one that I've been looking forward to for a long time, Tom Mandrake. Tom drew the definitive run of The Spectre with writer John Ostrander back in the 90s, right after DC's Zero Hour. It is probably his best-known work amongst fans. And he has also worked on Martian Manhunter, Batman, and Grimjack. And now he is drawing and inking a book being published by Titan Comics and Hammer Horror called Captain Kronos, based on the Hammer Horror film from 1974. So Tom and I are going to talk a lot about the Spectre, how that all came to be with him on the title. We're also going to talk about his time at the Kubert School and working with Joe Kubert. And of course, there's plenty to talk about Hammer Horror, one of my favorite topics, and Captain Kronos, both the movie and the comic. Things tend to slow down as people get ready for the holidays, but I'm going to be bringing you brand new interviews all month long, including during the Christmas week. As of today, there are already three more episodes queued up and ready to go. So really good interviews. I'm very pleased with them. I have some great guests coming your way, and I'm very excited to bring to you those shows this month. And once again, if you like what you hear, please tell a friend, share, and rate and review on iTunes or Stitcher. Your comments are greatly appreciated. All right, then, let's get started. My interview with artist Tom Mandrake, here now on Creator Talks. Tom, welcome to Creator Talks. Well, thank you. I appreciate you having me. Delighted to have you. And what I'd like to discuss on our show today, your latest work, Captain Kronos, but also just about you as an artist. And I'm going to go way back through the mists of time. You were a fan of Marvel Comics back in the 1960s. That's right, I was. It was my first love was uh, Captain America in the Avengers. Did you actually get issue number four where he came back in the Silver Age? That's the first comic book that I can actually remember reading. Was that given to you? I mean, was that like a gift or something? Or you just like found it in a store? Or? I wish that I could say for sure. It's the, only, it's the first comic book I remember holding in my hands and actually being able to follow what was going on in the book. And, and when I say reading, it's not the first comic book I can remember looking at. That would be an issue of uh, Hot Stuff, you know, the Little Devil oh, from yeah. uh, Comics. That I can remember holding in my hands but not being able to read. The issue of the Avengers where Captain America comes back, I can remember reading and getting all excited because Captain America was back, even though I had no idea who he was. I had to go ask my dad. <laughs> so I have a suspicion that my dad probably gave me the comic book. Yeah, my first comics were hand-me-downs too. Uh, <laughs> like, and, and when I started reading Marvels, it was in the 70s. So I wasn't there during that peak period in the 60s when everything was exploding and being created by you know, uh, Kirby and Lee and Ditko and the whole gang. But I got a lot of the reprints that came out at the end of what they call the Silver Age. So I was that's kind of where I started, uh, you know, through things like Marvel superheroes comic book. And um, that was like a two-part book that had Iron Man and Daredevil, and there was like Marvel's Greatest Comics and all this stuff. So I kind of felt like I was there. But uh, that's a great way to start with your comics. You know, the, that, that would certainly make an impression upon you, uh, something that was drawn by Jack Kirby. It sure did. Uh, and I love all the comics from the 60s. And my dad was a... Uh a comic book fan from the 40s in the in the 50s. So uh, he was making sure that I got my hands on everything I wanted. Oh, that's nice. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Did he keep any of those old books or like most people, were they 
eventually just thrown out. He didn't keep his comic books, although I have quite a, a collection of his old pulp magazines, which he did hang on to. Amazing stories and famous fantastic mysteries. I have a bunch of those, although unfortunately at this point they are so deteriorated that you can't really leaf through them anymore. Yeah, I just really hang on to them for sentimental value, really. Absolutely. We used to have arguments about uh, who was better, Captain Marvel or Superman. <laughs> <laughs> Were there other favorite comics of yours back then? And are there some that you still follow today? My favorite comics back then, well, as I say, initially I was a big Marvel fan. And I think that had as much to do with what I could get my hands on as anything else. Access to the Marvel line was what was in the newsstand. So I was a big fan of those. And at the barbershop where we went to as kids, they, they had all the war comics. So I was familiar with the, the DC um, war line. So I knew uh, Joe Kubert's stuff. I knew Russ Heath's work. And then a little bit later on, the newsstand that I went to started picking up all the DC stuff as well. So uh, it was shortly after that that I started to be able to access everything. So by um, the late 60s and early 70s, it was a great newsstand because they had everything. They had DC, Marvel, Charlton, they had all the Warren books. So I was lucky in that regard that we had a, an outlet where you could get your hands on everything available. That is being very lucky because back then, even when I started collecting, it was going to a local 7-Eleven or to a drugstore and seeing what they had. And I didn't always get all the issues because of that because I, at that point, I didn't know when they came out. I had no idea. I would go every day <laughs> just to see if something new popped up. Yeah, for a small town, we had an unusually good supply. Now, outside of comics, you are a fan of the Brandywine School of Art? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Um, and there's a, a really great museum, the Brandywine uh, River Museum, which is not far from here. From my house, it's three or four hours to get there. And most of the uh, students at the Cuba School, when I was going there, were fans. So we've been down there many times. And anybody who's listening, if you've never been there, you should definitely go to the Brandywine River Museum. It's funny you should mention that because I was going to bring it up because it's not far from me. It's maybe like 20 minutes, 25 minutes. And I've been there <laughs> several times. Yeah. I mean, they have art there by Howard Pyle and one of his students, N.C. Wyeth, and a lot of the Wyeths. And um, this time of year, as we're recording this, they set up their train display. Yeah, it's worth going there and, and paying a visit if, for those who haven't been there or those in the area nearby who can go. And is your favorite Howard Pyle? It's difficult when you have artists of that quality to pick a favorite. I would say that because Pyle was the originator of that school of painting, that he's sort of my favorite. But I love those N.C. Wyeth paintings. You know? Oh, yeah. Uh, it is hard to pick out a favorite. Uh, I love Schoonover's work. I love Pyle's work. I love Wyeth's work. Uh, I'm just, whenever I go there, whoever happens to be uh, the artists that they're featuring, I'm just happy to see it. When were you first exposed to that art? Was it while you were in school or was it through books that you were reading? For that particular school, I, I was, again, I was lucky. My dad was always there to make sure that I saw these things. So I have a couple of older copies of uh, Pyle's Robin Hood and, and a couple of, of big volumes of uh, Wyatt's work as well. So I was familiar with those artists before I even came out here to uh, New Jersey. And Dad was a big Virgil Finley fan, too. So that's one of the reasons that uh, I have this collection of pulp magazines, because Finley was featured in Amazing Stories a lot. So that's that was why he was buying those as much for the stories as the art. Is there one particular work of theirs, uh, let's say of Howard Piles, that you just love and that you wish you had? 
Well, I think I've probably got in some form or other, I don't want to say all, because there's always something that you don't have, but I do love his Robin Hood. Yeah, I have a few of those books too. I have an N.C. Wyeth book that has a lot of, it has some of Pyle's work in it too, and has a lot of N.C. Wyeth's artwork in it. And I've always held on to that because I love the uh, adventure stories like Treasure Island and seeing all that artwork that he did for that. It's just, it's amazing. Uh, the Treasure Island, yeah, Wyeth's Treasure Island is just fantastic. And I guess that had a very big influence on you to become an artist besides the comic books. I love superhero comics and, and the opportunity to tell those kind of stories, but I also love the chance to do non-superhero stories as well, you know, action, adventure, horror stuff. When I first started in comics, it was pretty much all superheroes. And, and of course, now the market is much more open to other kinds of things, which I think is fantastic to be able to move from one genre to another is great. Yeah, there's a lot of variety now, so it's great for the fans, and it's great for the artists and the writers, because they have a lot of different things that they can try and actually have a chance of having published, because I guess back earlier, it would have been much more difficult to reach an audience doing anything outside of superheroes. I think I started doing work professionally around 1980, and that was, you know, you had Marvel and DC, and, and their lines are almost strictly superheroes, and if you weren't doing that, it was difficult to find anything else. I remember doing some work on Warlord, which was, of course, not superhero stuff. And I did some Swamp Thing. And, but, the, but those opportunities were rare compared to you know, trying to find superhero work specifically. Now, some of your training included going to the Crucible, the Cooper School of Art. And you were there for two years? There were only two classes that had uh, just the two years. We like to think of ourselves as the class that convinced Joe that it would need three years instead of two years. <laughs> uh, so we were the 1979 graduating class, and then there was no graduating class in 1980, and then 1981 was the first three-year class. And that's when they decided that they needed another year, really, to get people prepared? Yeah, absolutely. And uh, I teach there now. From my experience there and from teaching students, they really do need that third year. Um, our third year really was spent doing backup stories and going over to Joe's studio and having him work as an an editor, and he was very giving of his time for those of us who showed the interest and, and were willing to make the effort. He would hand out, you know, five or six page stories that we would work on and we'd take them to his studio and, and he'd tell us what was wrong with them. We'd take them back and keep working on them that way. So in a way, we did have a third year, but it was um, working professionally. And so is that how you got a chance to work on Sergeant Rock, working with Joe, doing those backup stories? That's exactly how it came about. He picked out a certain number of people. There were quite a few of us, really, in our uh, from my class. It was me and Jan Dorisma and I think Ron Randall, Kim DeMolder. There may have been a couple others from my class. I can't remember for sure uh, that he ha was handing out the, uh, the backups. It's a long time ago. <laughs> no, I had Ron Randall on the show, and we did talk about that because I believe he did some backup work, too, on Sergeant Rock. So that's how he started the same way. Did you guys all hang out at certain places while you were going to school, like after-school hours when you weren't toiling over the art? Oh, yeah. Uh, Ron is a very close friend of mine and uh, still is. Uh, he, of course, he lives on the West Coast now, but uh, Ron was my roommate when I was going to uh, the Kubert School. And you met Jan there. That's right. And you were married there. Married married in the back of the uh, school. That's right. <laughs> it's all we could afford. And Joe was kind enough to allow us to get married there. Okay. I was going to say, why did you decide to do that? So it was really a financial consideration. It was, but it was also, um, you know, the time was in the... what was known then as the Baker Mansion, which is now the dormitory for the school. And it's really a beautiful old mansion. And at that time, it had a big gazebo in the backyard. It was really 
a very nice location for uh, any kind of outdoor event. So we thought that would be a great place because it's where we met. So when we asked Joe, he thought that was great. It worked out. Uh, we were the only people that got married there. Andy Cuber got married there too. The gazebo has fallen down since then. <laughs> Is there anything that Joe taught you that really sticks in your mind that you practice to this day? You know, Joe's voice is, has always been in the back of my head. And it's it's funny how often it comes up that uh, I, I teach a class at the Kubert School with with Andy. We've talked about how Joe told us things. And sometimes it didn't click in for 10 years afterwards. And suddenly you slap your head and go, oh, that's what he meant. But a, a lot of stuff that you that you learn as an artist doesn't really you don't really comprehend it for years and then there, there's that, there's that guy standing behind you. A specific thing isn't coming to my mind right now, except when I get frustrated, and I would take those six-page backups to Joe, and I would be so upset about that not working out, and he would say, "It's only drawing," <laughs> <laughs> which, which doesn't seem like much, but I understand what he means now because after all these years. I don't allow myself to, to get to that stage of frustration, but I see it in, the, in my, my students sometimes, you know. And you say, it's only drawing, relax. It's not that big a deal. You'll get through it. Yeah, I've heard that from writers too. Like, don't get too attached to your work, like what you've produced. If it gets criticized, that's fine. Be willing to accept the criticism. Don't get so involved in it that, oh, I made this and it's all mine. And that's really something that happens to somebody that's just starting out. Oh, yeah. Absolutely. Well, my son is going to the Kubert School now, too, and I see the same thing happening to him. You did develop a horror correspondence course. Is the course you're teaching now also involved in horror or something else? Well, no, the, the horror course that I developed, I, I developed directly with Joe. Uh, but I'm teaching uh, second-year narrative art. I do that with Andy Kubert. We, we work on that one together, and then I teach third-year sketch and layout. Now, why did you start with horror as the first one? Uh, mostly because Joe called me up one day and said, I want you to do the horror correspondence course. And I said, <laughs> yes, sir. <laughs> did he have a reason for starting with horror? Was it just like really popular at that time? And it... Was that the first one that came out? I don't know if that was the first one that came out, but um, I thought that was like one of the first ones you developed. I didn't know if he had a reason for doing that, if you know that was just, there was a need for it. I honestly don't know. So I don't know the sequence of those correspondence courses as they came out. Um, when he asked me to do it, um, I just dove in. It could, it could be just because maybe I was the first one it got done. I don't really know. <laughs> My first introduction to your work was something you probably get to talk to about a lot was the Spectre. Mm -hmm. And I wasn't even really a DC reader. I think what happened at the time, back in the early 90s, I was getting frustrated with Marvel at the time because of all the fancy covers, um, you know, foil covers and everything. I just wanted a good comic. And they were suffering a bit, in my opinion. And um, I started picking up DC around Zero Hour. So I think what happened was I bought all the Zero Hour books, and of course the Spectre was one of them. And I was immediately captivated by not only the writing by John Ostrander, but also the art by you. And it reminded me of one of my favorite artists from the 60s, although it's not the same, but it kind of reminded me of it in spirit, was Gene Colan um, and having that horror element to it. And I knew nothing about the Spectre and I just dove into it and that one has always stuck with me. What was it like when you found out that you're going to be working on that book, especially when they were rebooting essentially the DC universe? DC didn't come to us to do the Spectre. John and I came up with the idea that we, that's what we wanted to do. 
And we put a proposal together and went to D.C. and said, can we do this? And their initial reaction was it wasn't possible for the specter to maintain his own series. The idea being that it was a one note character, that all he did was that he was too powerful and that nobody could make it work, which obviously is not true. <laughs> we proved that to be wrong. But to their credit, they said, well, we don't really think this is going to work. But if you guys, if this is what you want to do, uh, we'll do it. And John wrote a great proposal. And for years, I remember Dan Raspoy used to keep that proposal around and he would show it to people and say, this is how you put a proposal together. <laughs> I've actually still got the uh, the original proposal here. I scanned it so that I could uh, keep it on hand because it is a really well done one. But at any rate, while they weren't interested in in particular in doing a Spectre series, we they allowed us to get it started and, and we got a really positive response. And uh, I had a great time working on it. John and I both did. And we knew right from the beginning, and it's written in the uh, proposal, we had an ending in mind. We thought it was going to be sooner than it was. And the ending written in the proposal is not the same one that we came up with. It's similar, but not the same. Because, of course, as the series went on, our concept morphed a little bit. So I think originally we envisioned this as a one or two year storyline and it turned into, I think, about five years. Do you think you would ever go back to the character? Yeah, I would. Absolutely. Even if it were like just a one shot or an annual, I think yeah. that'd be fantastic. Is that the one book that people probably comment to you about the most at cons? Oh yeah, absolutely. Without a doubt, that's, that's the one that I get the most comments on and my most requested sketch character, too. When I'm at a convention, I, I draw more specters than anything else, which I'm more than happy to do, because I, I, I love the character, and he's so much fun to draw. Is there one that's a close second that people remember you for the most? If you're just going by sketch requests, it would be the specter, Batman, Martian Manhunter. And one book that you worked on a few years back that I actually really liked through Dark Horse was To Hell You Ride. And that was a limited series, you know, five issues. But that one, too, especially dealing with the Native Americans and the Native American culture, was phenomenal. How much input did you have on the story itself? That was a, a fantastic experience working with Lance Hendrickson and uh, Joe Madre. And, and Lance is, he loves interaction back and forth. And the three of us were constantly in contact and we would get on the phone or, or on Skype and talk the whole thing through endlessly. Lance, Joe, and I would be talking. Joe, who's a tremendously fast typist, would be typing down literally everything that was said in our conversations, which would go on for hours. And then somehow he managed to turn those crazy conversations into some coherent form and turn them into a script. Uh, it was, it was great. It was really fun. And, uh, I loved working on that book, and I'm really proud of it. They did a really nice hardcover version of that, too, that I was, I was really glad to see. But it's a, a very unusual book and uh, far from the mainstream. So in that re respect, once again, the opportunity to do something that unusual was really exciting. And I'm not meaning to bring up a lot of old work, but those are things that I really did appreciate. And since we haven't had a chance to ever talk before, I wanted to bring those up. And it's great to see that collect as a hardcover. And it's great to see that the Spectre's also been collected. Yeah, they haven't gotten all the way through it, but at least they're finally getting around to doing it. Yeah, they started. Because I'll tell you, in my area, locally, it's hard to find issues of the Spectre that you worked on. 
I've got a whole bunch of them in my closet. <laughs> <laughs> I've, got, I've got all my, you know, it used to be years ago, they used to give you 25 copies and that's a lot of copies. And at some point I'm going to have to empty out my closet <laughs> and flood the market with old copies of the Spectre. Now, since you've started working in the 80s, how have you seen your art evolve since you first began? I would say that for the first 10 years of my career, I was struggling to find myself. And I'm not saying that I don't like the work that I did. You know, I can I can take the long view now and, and look at, at my early work and say, well, you know, this is work where this person is trying to find themselves and they, and they did some good work here and they, and they struggled a little bit there and they did some good work here. But somewhere before I, I finally got to the specter, I finally started really getting much more confident um, I did a long run on the uh, Grimjack, and you can see, if you look through there, you can see the development. And then somewhere in the mid-90s, I think I latched on to what I think people see as a consistent style, uh, what people define as my look. And, and I know very often people will say that they see a similarity in my work to Gene Collins, which I think is great because I think he's a tremendous artist. And it's not entirely conscious, but it's since he was one of the guys that I'm a huge fan of, it's uh, it's certainly logical that it's in there. Now, do you prefer to do your own inking over your pencils? I do. That was something that uh, Joe used to hammer into me all the time. It's something he always said, you know, you've, you've got to ink your own stuff. And I turned down some jobs early on in order to make that happen. A great ink job is done by some tremendous artists, but... I'm happiest when I'm inking my own work. No, I can see that in the work. I think that's when you did come into your own style, when you started doing the inking on your own. And it was around the Spectre when you started doing that, Grimjack and the Spectre? It, that, that kind of thing uh, sort of came and went. You know, I, I, I got that job early on inking, or I should say doing finishes over Salvia Sema on the uh, Newman's. But they, they had asked me to work in a, uh, more, a little more of a house style on that. So that wasn't really me trying to be me. Grimjack, that was just, you know, I was allowed to do anything I wanted there, uh, and Batman too. But then when I got to uh, do all those issues as a Swamp Thing, I was being inked by Alfredo Alcala. And of course, Alfredo, who is one of the great inkers of all time, but he has a very dominant style. So that was fine. But, you know, at a certain point there, when uh, Karen Berger asked me if I wanted to be the regular pencil, I actually turned that down because... I felt that if I stayed there for too long, I would just develop, you know, that reputation of being a penciler. And I really wanted to ink my own stuff. So I actually walked away from that job just for that reason. I didn't want to be living under Alfredo's uh, shadow. I love his inks. They're, they're gorgeous, but that's not where I wanted to go. And I ended up, instead of working on the Swamp Thing, John and I, uh, John Ostrander and I started working on Firestorm instead. I can say without doubt now that was the right thing to do because we went right from Firestorm to the Spectre and we had that long run of Firestorm, the Spectre, the Kents and the Martian Manhunter. So I feel like I made the right choice there. And I want to ask you about art in general. Um, there are a lot of artists now who use, well, they use their Macs, they use their computers to actually do the drawing and it's just a different instrument to use. They're still producing wonderful art. They've done tremendous things with the technology now. Do you think that someone that functions just as an inker might be a dying art? That someone might have to be all-in-one pencils and inks? Because I see a lot more of that now. Well, I think that there will always be room for inkers, but there, without a doubt, that role has been uh, diminished. There, there's less work for people who are just inkers available. 
I will probably not make that change. I love the process. You know, it, it's taken me a long time to learn to do what I do. I like doing it. I like to have the original artwork. I like the feel of working on paper. Uh, I like to have the original art. You know, if nothing else, it's a market. It's a secondary market to sell the original art. is is uh, nothing to uh, to sneeze at. You know, there are times when uh, you might need that secondary market. Uh, freelancing is an up and down thing. You know, sometimes you're not making any money and you can sell original art. So in a purely mercenary way, why would I want to do everything digital? <laughs> you know, I, I'd be cutting my, a, a piece of the market out for myself. But more importantly to me, I enjoy the process, the physical process of drawing on paper. Now it's hammer time to talk about Captain Kronos. All right. I had an opportunity actually to watch the movie over the weekend. It was on YouTube, the whole thing. Um, and I think, you know, they, they want it out there because they're trying to also sell the video. If you want to buy a video copy, you certainly can. So that's one of the reasons why I was excited to talk about your current series because I am a Hammer classic horror fan. I didn't know about this film. Oh, you are? Oh, absolutely. Ah, good, good. What were some of your favorite Hammer horror films? And when did you first run across them? Well, I've been, I've been watching them. I mean, I used to go to the movies to see them. When, when I was a kid, they were, that's when those movies were coming out. And the first one that I saw was uh, the first Christopher Lee Dracula movie. Mm, yes. And that scared the hell out of me. <laughs> <laughs> and I still think that's one of the great confrontations between Dracula and Van Helsing. And when Van Helsing jumps up on that table and he runs across the room and jumps up and pulls the drapery down and Dracula falls backwards into the sunlight and deteriorates, that one still gets me. Yeah, I understand they've restored some of the footage that was cut out. Yes. Because it was too gruesome at the time to show something like that. It was pretty darn effective when I see the finished, you know, everything put back in. It is pretty gruesome. Yeah, it's still a very effective scene. Those two actors... Cushing and Lee were at their best. They were so good and so energetic and powerful in that uh, movie. Yes. Love it. Even the first one they worked in together, uh, The Curse of Frankenstein, and then subsequently later, The Mummy. I think the two worked together so well off of each other. There's something magnetic when they're together in a scene. And what's interesting about Captain Kronos is that Hammer was trying to revive the, the company overall. So they wanted to come up with a franchise, an ongoing series of movies about Captain Kronos, but unfortunately, that didn't happen, I guess, because of budgetary reasons. That was one of the last things that they did, and they barely got the film out. It's a great concept. You can, you can see that they're, they're hurting for money a little bit, I think, when you watch the movie. But I think it would have it made a great series, and it's just, it just hammer on its last legs, trying something unusual. And it, it has the, the feel, even for, what was it, 1974, I think, mm -hmm. of being possibly a little dated for the time. But I love it. I think it's a great movie, and it's so much fun. And uh, I, I think it's something that would do well now. You know, a remake of that movie now could be just a thing. Absolutely, yeah. And one of the fun things about watching the movie is I always pick out actors that I recognize from something else. It's kind of like this weird power that I have. My wife is like, how do you do that? Like, you can just – it could be like somebody could be 20 years older. And I'm like, <laughs> oh, that's so-and-so, and they were in this movie. And, like, you know, otherwise I'm, I'm useless. But that stuff I can do. And – I recognize one of the actors, uh, John Carson, Dr. Marcus, from Doctor Who, which he was in later in, uh, it wasn't Snake Dance, it was one of the, the Fifth Doctor episodes. I was like, oh, I know who that is. <laughs> I've seen him before. <laughs> and he was also in The Avengers. That's what's fun about the Hammer movies is 
from one one Hammer movie to the other or from old British uh, TV shows, you see the same people going through. It seems like a relatively <laughs> small market of actors that they were dealing with. And I was digging through doing some research about this, and I came across House of Hammer magazines online. And it turns out, and I don't know if you've ever seen these, but in the first three issues of that magazine series back in the 70s, there was a Captain Kronos story. That's right. They had a black and white story. Yeah, yeah. And that was kind of a continuation or a, like a, a sequel to the movie. Yes, much more closely tied to the movie than what we're doing. And once again, uh, Carla's in there. Because normally, it's like, at the end of the movie, it's like, well, see you later. You know, she's not part of the gang. <laughs> now, in your book... They dumped her in the movie. Yeah, they did. And even after this, this uh, sequel, they dumped her again. <laughs> it's like, nope, too dangerous for you. Bye. And in your book, she's an apprentice of Professor Grost. Yeah, I, I love that that aspect of it when I read the first script uh, well actually when we first talked about it and they said well Carla is not a bystander here she's part of the team you know which is the right kind of update for what we're doing instead of having the help of Shumiel she's right in there getting her hands dirty which is perfect do you know who did the art on the original I mean not the original but the uh, the sequel that was in the um, House of Hammer magazines uh, I don't know off the top of my head no I found out. <laughs> I did. I dug around and I found out from the editor of the magazine. Ian Gibson is the artist. Cause I was like, wow, this is really good. Who did this? And uh, uh, so so uh, Steve Moore did the story. And he also did the comic book adaptation of the movie in issue 20. It's like a 12-page, very pithy summary of the movie. Mm-hmm. Um, closer to the script, actually. And then uh, in this initial sequel it was ian gibson who did work on 2000 ad and doctor who magazine weekly so right um, yeah he's great yeah i mean it's really amazing stuff so it's uh it'd be cool to see it reprinted someday if they're doing with a lot of the old black and white comic books oh yeah i I love the uh, 2000 ad stuff always been a fan i can clearly see why now but why did it come down to you being the artist for this new series i mean it's perfect fit clearly see why but how did that come about april or may last year 2016, I was online looking around and I read that Titan and Hammer were working together. That Titan had the Hammer license. And when I read that, I was like, well, I want in on that. So I just got in touch with David Leach at uh, Titan and said, I want to be involved in this. I, I see you guys have the Hammer license. I love Hammer movies. So how about how about me? And he was like, that's a great idea. I would have never thought of calling you, but absolutely. <laughs> Now, see, that's what I like about you. The Spectre, you went after it. <laughs> and this one, you went after it, too. You know, when you see something you want, that's how you freelance, you know? All, all anybody can say is no. That's right. And I've had that happen many times. I've got a whole list of no's as well. But, uh, but, but this time, it worked out great. So, you know, when I, when I contacted him and asked him about this, the, the first thing he did was start uh, throwing some covers my way, which is great. I did covers for... Uh, uh, the Anno Dracula series that they did, and for the Mummy series, a couple other odds and ends here and there. But the whole time we were talking about the Captain Chronos series, uh, it, it took quite a while to get it started because Hammer was was looking over the script very carefully, and I think they they might have actually started it one way and then decided to do an entire rewrite of the the series. I, I think they might have been. I'm not sure because I never saw the original version of the script, but I think they might have gone in a completely different direction initially and then changed their minds and and, uh, gone with the version that that you see now. And fortunately, as far as I'm concerned, they decided not to try and make it too 
reference heavy in terms of making it look just like the characters. In other words, it was, let's do the comic book and let the comic book be a comic book. Let's not try to make it look just like the movie and let's not concern ourselves with making it exactly right before the movie or right after the movie. Let's just do Kronos and make it feel like it, you know, get the general feel, but let's tell our own story. So we've got the same characters, but, you know, Carla is her own woman now. And for people who like Captain Kronos, they'll still recognize this book, but we've updated it conceptually enough that I think that new fans will enjoy it too. Yeah, new fans. They don't know anything about the movie. Perfectly accessible. And one of the great things that Titan does with all their books, especially through their Hammer series, page one, if you missed issue one or you missed issue two, no big deal. Right there in the first page, it encapsulates everything you need to know. One page. You can jump in anywhere. This is a pretty straightforward story. This is a good way to start the series. It's not a complicated story in that regard. It's just a great action-adventure story. Just like the, just like Kronos, just like the movie, we have that same feel. You can do so much more, and there is so much more action in this one, because I know the movie started out kind of slow in a way, because all you're seeing is victim, victim, victim. Where's Captain Kronos? When's he going to get involved in all this? You know, like, we're losing people here. But uh, in the comic, boom, get right to it. Uh, and again, now that's, I think, a reflection of the period of time the movie was made as well. It's fair to say that modern audiences are not very forgiving with any amount of dead air. You know, they, they're not they're not going to stand around and wait. I'm willing to to wait for an older movie to get going. But modern audiences, not so much. Yeah, there's too much competing. They want something. They want it all at once. They want it yeah. fast. Um, and another great thing about the comic book is the back matter, because they've done this in the other series like The Mummy. Uh, they put in notes about the movie, movie notes, all kinds of neat information that people may not be aware of. So that's a bonus to get those uh, single copies to check that out. Plus, you always get a nice cover with uh, Carolyn Monroe on them, too. So. Oh, yes. Yes. <laughs> you have a couple of nice art covers and a cover with Carolyn Monroe on it. So you can't beat that. So the third issue just came out as we're having this conversation. So there's two more. Is it five, up to five issues? It's four issues. Oh, it's four. Okay. Okay. Yeah. So I'm actually inking number four right now. So we're almost done. And then you'll have a trade come out. It uh, looks like March 21st next year. That's right. And please tell me there'll be more. <laughs> <laughs> Have you guys had conversations about more? <laughs> well, I, I wish I could say that that was for sure. I know that uh, both Hammer and uh, Titan are very happy with the series, but it always comes down to sales. So I'm hopeful. I'm hopeful that we'll have more. This is, you know, this has been a great team that, that I'm working with. I, I love working with David and, and uh, Dan, and uh, my daughter Sean is the color artist on it, and, and uh, I really enjoy working with her too. So. It's not always easy to get a really good team together either. No, it's a great team. The colors are great. I mean, I, I tell you, I've read books recently. I won't, I won't say who, but I've read some books. I like the art, um, even if the art's not fantastic. But then the colors will go in there, and the colors are trying to do too much to flesh out the art, the line work, and it just doesn't work. I'd rather see it in black and white. This book's perfect. I mean, it looks fantastic, but sometimes, you know, if you don't have a good colorist, it's not the right fit. And sometimes the artist doesn't have a choice. You, you clearly do have a choice, but some don't. This is like, this is what we're going to pair you with. And then it doesn't quite come out the way you want it to. That is, you know, a constant battle in, in this business. And it has been ever since the advent of computer coloring. Um, if you, and I've had projects, and, and I'm, I'm not going to say which ones. I have had jobs where the colorist, just buries the line quality. You know, I work hard on the inks and 
I don't need a colorist to come in and model and destroy the artwork in favor of the color, the color. I feel that the color should enhance the artwork and still show off the line work rather than bury it. And, uh, and Sean is an excellent artist in her own right, understands that. And I've seen the opposite where the colorist puts too much into it and tries to add their own line work over top of the art, which is more, maybe this particular artist might have more of a simpler line and do more with less. And they try to add too much in and it just winds up looking weird. <laughs> you know, it just doesn't Absolutely. come out right. Yeah. No, you have a great team, so I hope the, the team gets together again so that the series can continue. And it's really important for people to talk this up and know about it because the shelves are just so crowded with so many books. There's books, there's trades. You can buy them digitally, you can buy them in print. And it's really hard to stand out. And this is a great series. Hammer is very popular still amongst fans. You know, it's just there's a lot. The big two are putting out a lot of books and more power to them. But, you know, for the smaller publishers, I'm concerned that sometimes they don't get the the recognition and the amount of um, shelf space and promotion that they deserve for some of the great work that's being put out. It is absolutely true. It's, it's a battle in the U.S. market to make enough noise to stand up next to Marvel and DC for any really good book. You can do some excellent work, but the white noise is just more than you can uh, fight against. No, absolutely. And that's why, you know, when I get my uh, previous catalog, I go page by page by page because I always catch something that if I didn't read through it, I would have missed it because there's just not enough promotion going on because it costs a lot of money to promote. You know, I mean, the big two, they have the bucks to do it. Uh, the smaller oh, yeah. ones don't. So a lot of it has to be word of mouth. That's why I have conversations like this so people can find out about it through the podcast and learn something about the creator and learn something about what the book itself and what's going into the making of the book. I'm working on number four here. Number one is out. I'm still, I still have people saying, well, what are you working on right now? <laughs> <No>. <laughs> and I expect that, you know, my next, my next convention I think is in April. And I know that there'll be people there who still won't know that Cronus has come out and I'll still be working on making that happen to get them to understand that it's there and that, uh, how often I, I hear from fans, you know, I really like good stories that are easy to read. And I'll say, well, then you should be read Captain Kronos. And they'll go, well, what's that? So that, you know, that battle continues. And I love working with Marvel and DC, always will. But the other companies deserve some time and credit too. Is there a project that you hope to do someday, or maybe even another character that's owned by Marvel or DC that you want to get to someday? Just before I did Kronos, I did a Kickstarter uh, for a project called uh, Cross Hallowed Ground. I did that with John Ostrander. It's funny how this worked out because John and I started Cross Hallowed Ground almost 10 years ago and put it aside and then decided, well, it's hard to find a publisher for this. Let's do it ourselves. So we kickstarted it and Cross is a vampire hunter. Something of an homage to Captain Kronos because I thought, well, I'm never going to get to work on Captain Kronos. <laughs> so, <laughs> so we put out this 140-page graphic novel, and and the uh, Kickstarter went very well, and we're we're still delivering copies. Uh, we're still in the middle of shipping this project. We sold a lot of them on the Kickstarter, and when we get that done, I'd like to see if we can't get it to a more general audience by doing a second printing somewhere. Oh, I hope so. That I'm sure a lot of people like myself didn't know about this before speaking to you. So that'd be something great to see another publisher pick it up. So the, again, that's that's that question of white noise. You know, you, you try to uh, to get a, a creator on a project like that out there into the wind, 
if it wasn't that John and I did it, I think it probably wouldn't have even gotten through the Kickstarter. But at least we had our our names and reputations to to sell off of. But uh, Cross Hallowed Ground is a vampire story that takes place during the Battle of Gettysburg. During the battle, during the night, the three days of the uh, Battle of Gettysburg, during the night, the vampires come out. And that's what the basic premise of this story is. So we had a great time doing that. So I, I just finished that. And then Captain Kronos comes out. So it was really weird that these two stories, you know, came together one after the other. Uh, after that, you know, I'm talking to several people about other projects. I would love to do another series of uh, Captain Kronos. I'd, I'd like to do some more creator-owned work. I'd like to write my own stuff, too. I've got, I've got a couple of projects. I find it very difficult to write. And I feel like it's something I should do more of. I've been slowly and painfully trying to write my own graphic novel. And I've got one just about fleshed out, but I need it to be edited. So I'm going to have to hand that off to Jan. She's a very good editor. She edited uh, Cross for uh, John and I. That's the next thing I have to do. Yeah, there's, there's just tons of stuff. It never ends. I mean, I've always got things. I've always got a thousand projects I want to do and the projects that are at hand, you know. Well, I just have a few questions for you that I ask all my guests Okay. as we wrap up. And the first one is, what do you like to do for rest and relaxation? Well, I like to practice Tai Chi and yoga. Those are the things that I do for exercise. For rest and relaxation, I like to, I like to play video games. One of the ones that I'm playing right now is uh, one called Little Nightmares. And I like to read a lot. Right now I'm reading a book called 1421, which is about China's explorations of the world. In, uh, in the year 1421. Well, related to reading, if you were stuck on a deserted island and you only had one book, what would it be? Something that either you like to read or something that you want to get to reading? One book. Oh, my God. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I could see. That, it's like that episode of The Twilight, is it the Twilight Zone where the, the librarian breaks his glasses. Oh, yes. Burgess oh, Meredith, my. yes. Yeah. <laughs> uh God, I don't know. And it could be anything, you know, it could be it could be a comic, it could be a book, it could be a collection of books that are all part of the same series, like a Harry Potter, for example, or Lord of the Rings. I don't have any way to answer that. <laughs> yeah, I don't think I could I could nail that down. It's like asking me who my favorite artist is. Hmm. Uh, years ago I could answer those kinds of questions. Now I can't seem to put my finger on any one thing. It's like there's so much that I want to read. And so many artists that I love that I can never just nail one thing down. I, I understand. So someone says to me, what do you really like to read each month in comics? I'm like, uh, all of it. That's why I get them. <laughs> so yeah. I have a really hard time with that. Um, final question. What is your beverage of choice when you're relaxing? I'm kind of mostly into beer and bourbon. Not at the same time. Sometimes. <laughs> <laughs> Any particular kind of beer? Because I like beer myself. I like IPAs. Uh, I am in the land of Dogfish Head, so Delaware has a lot of great breweries. Dogfish Head, that, that's a good beer. Um, yes. This time of year, um, I do like the uh, Sam Adams Winter Lager is out right now. Um, oh, excellent. Yeah, River Horse is a good beer. I had a nice glass of uh, Winterfest while I was watching the Justice League last weekend. Yeah? Yeah, yeah. Uh, we've, we've got a lot of good local breweries opening up around here too which is nice yeah we're very fortunate around here too i mean there's, there's just a lot of that have opened up in delaware i think dogfish head was one of the first microbrews that opened up like in the mid 90s yeah they've got a good reputation i've, I've had a few of their beers on tap there it's a that's a good beer 
I tend to go with their standards. Like I like the 60 minute. And if I have the time and I'm not doing anything or operating heavy machinery, the 90 minute IPA. Yeah. The 120 I have had in a small six ounce glass because <laughs> that's all they live you at a bar. <laughs> it's pretty intense. It is intense, but it's uh, it's good stuff. Now you had mentioned your next con coming up is going to be in April. What is that? That is the Atlantic City Convention. I I believe it's called Garden State Garden State Comic Con Atlantic City. And are there other ones you have planned for 2018? The same convention, uh, Garden State. They also do one in the Men and Arena, so I'll be doing that doing that one also. That's later in the summer, and the uh, the Meadowlands convention, which I think is in mid-July. So I've just got those three lined up. Well, great. Hopefully I can make it out to Atlantic City to see you and check out your work. Yeah, that would be great. First, Well, this is the first time they've done it in uh, Atlantic City. He's, he's been doing the one in the Menon Arena uh, for, for several years, and it's been a great show. And also really near my house, which is really nice because I've been able to sleep in my own bed for doing that <laughs> And the Meadowlands uh, convention is uh, very close to my house, too. And that's been a really good convention for us as well. So that's basically three Jersey shows we're doing. So we're doing local ones. Well, Tom, it's been great. And I really appreciate you spending time with me on Creator Talks. And thanks for being on the show. Well, I appreciate it. It's been fun. Thank you for listening to this episode of Creator Talks. The podcast is available on iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, Podbean, and YouTube. If you like what you hear, please rate and review on iTunes and Stitcher. Don't miss a single episode each Thursday. Subscribe, it's free. A new interview will be available each week, and sometimes there'll be a second, maybe even a third interview that week. You can send me feedback and comment on social media. I can be reached at Creator Talks Pod, that's at Creator Talks Pod on Facebook and Twitter. I'm also available on Instagram, Creator Talks Pod. There I will post pictures while I'm on location, as well as my Saturday Silver Age or Older and Sunday Bronze Age Spotlight comics from my personal collection. Don't forget to visit my website, creatortalks.com. There I have listed the latest episode on the homepage, plus a playlist of all the episodes to date that you can listen to online or download. In addition, on the site, I will be posting my recommended reading picks, as well as written interviews with creators. Also on my YouTube channel are video interviews with creators on location at comic conventions and elsewhere. I know you have a lot of entertainment to choose from and a lot of podcasts to choose from as well. And I thank you for making the time to listen to this one. Your best source for comic book writers, artists, and creators. There are more interviews in the works and you never know who it might be. It is my distinct honor and privilege to speak to these creators and bring you those interviews each week. I'd like to thank my executive co-producer, who makes this possible, Mrs. Calloway. That's all for now. For Creator Talks, I'm Christopher Calloway. Until next time.